Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African-American department here at the Central Library. And on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the Board of Trustees, and the Board of Directors, I welcome each and every one of you this evening to what will be an exciting uh, program. We also have, um, if you get an opportunity to look at our Compass newsletters, because we do have several other programs during the month of March for Women's History Month throughout our branches and Essential Library that you may be interested in, in coming to. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce this evening the, the person who is going to introduce our guest speaker, M. Dion Thompson, who is a former some paper writer, an Episcopalian minister, will introduce Dr. James Cohn for you this evening. So please give M. Dion Thompson a warm welcome. Quite all right. Uh, again, uh, thank you and uh, good evening to everyone. It is um, a beautiful thing that uh, we were forced to move upstairs. Uh, to uh, a bigger space um, to accommodate uh, all of us who are here today. It is uh, truly, truly an honor uh, for me to introduce uh, Dr. James Cohn, who is the uh, Charles A. Briggs Distinguished Professor of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary. Now, that's a mouthful, but um, leave it uh, to be said that Dr. Cohn is truly one of the most insightful and prominent uh, African-American theologians and just theologians, period, in, um, in America at this time and particularly in the last uh, half century. Um, his talk, of course, um, is going to bring us some powerful and challenging insights about uh, the connection between uh, the cross and uh, the lynching tree. And it's appropriate, at least in at this time of year in my church, which we call Lent, this term, this time, um, of 40 days, uh, the crosses in my church are veiled. And so in a sense, it's asking us to consider what the cross means and how we interpret it and how we look upon it. And so to have uh, Dr. Cohn here with us at this time is really, really wonderful. And I am sure that uh, his discussion tonight um, for all of us will give us a chance to perhaps um, reclaim uh, the old rugged cross in all of its tragic beauty. And that, I now give you Dr. James Cohn. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here tonight and to share in this occasion with you, I will give a reflection on the writing of the cross and the lynching tree. People have often asked me which one of my books is my favorite. And I really couldn't say. It was like choosing one of my children. But with the cross and the lynching tree, I now have a favorite. <laughs> I have been asked, how long did it take you to write the cross and the lynching tree? The formal time 
was about 10 years of research, thinking, and writing. I wrote many drafts before it reached its present form. However, in the deepest sense, I have been writing this book all my life, and I put my whole being into it, mind, body, soul, and heart, and I didn't hold anything back. It was like I didn't choose to write it. The cross and the lynching tree chose me. I took my time and chose every word carefully, as if the integrity of black faith and the freedom struggle that rose out of it were at stake. And I'm still writing it. I will, it will not be finished until I draw my last breath. I remember when I first sat down to write a book more than 40 years ago. I didn't know that I could write it. But the fire of the civil rights movement and black power were burning deep inside me, and I had to let it out. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Bringing forth black theology and black power, 1969, saved me from a meaningless theological career. It was a transforming experience, empowering me to write with clarity and power that even surprised me. Since that Kairos moment, I have been reading thinking, and writing almost daily, trying to make sense out of how African Americans survived and resisted four centuries of the terror of white supremacy. The cross and the lynching tree is a special moment in my theological journey this book engaged me like no other subject. For years, I have been wrestling with the great paradox of Jesus's crucifixion and the lynching of African Americans, talking about it in my classes at Union, in lectures and sermons at seminaries, colleges, universities, and churches community groups, and even on TV and radio shows, and with anyone who would listen to me. The more I researched and wrote, the more I realized that this book had to be written with the most creative theological imagination that I could muster. 
and with the best prose that I could create. The subject was too important for a half-hearted and second-rate effort. I often wondered whether I had the literary talent to write the kind of book that the subject deserved. I hope that I have written a book that bears witness to black people's struggle for justice and to the faith that empowered and sustained them in their fight against great odds. Without qualifications, I can honestly say I did my best. To do less would have been a theological sin. Of course, I'm not James Baldwin or Toni Morrison, and I only have so much writing talent. And as I was writing, I prayed to God of the universe to give me wisdom, insight, and especially courage to write the truth about the black religious experience in the United States. Now, there are biblical scholars, American historians, and writers, black writers, who know more than I do about the cross of Jesus in the Roman world, the lynching era in the US, and African-American women's history and literature. Yet, I know enough about all those subjects to write this book. The question I have been wrestling with is this. How did African-Americans survive and resist the lynching terror and to keep enough of their sanity to love and to marry each other, to raise their children, and to teach them to love and to respect each other? The answer is clear. It was their faith in God and themselves that kept them emotionally and spiritually healthy enough to love not only themselves and each other, but even the whites who lynched them. What an amazing accomplishment. Whites used Christianity to lynch blacks, and blacks used it to survive and to resist whites. The more I reflected on the cross and the lynching tree, the more I understood why black Christians could not turn away from the cross, even though whites used it to enslave, segregate, and to lynch them. This is the great paradox in black life. Now, there are theologians who will have nothing to do with the cross as an explanation of Jesus' salvation, what it's Jesus' salvation means. Intellectually, they may be right, but I do not think so. And my reasons are found in the cross and the lynching tree, which I now turn, beginning 
with the quotations that led, that set the tone for this book. And let me read them to you. The first quotation comes from the book of Acts. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Acts 10.39. The next quotation. Hundreds of Kodaks clicked all morning at the scene of the lynching. People in automobiles and carriages came from miles around to view the corpse dangling from the end of a rope. Picture card photographers installed a portable printing print at the bridge and reaped the harvest and selling the postcards showing the photograph of the lynch Negro. Women and children were there by the score. At a number of country schools, the day's routine was delayed until boys and girl pupils could get back from viewing the lynch man. That is a quotation from the Crisis Magazine, NAACP, June 1915. Now the quotation from the text of this, of my book. That quotation begins by saying, the cross and the lynching tree are separated by nearly 2,000 years. One is a universal symbol of the Christian faith. The other is the quintessential symbol of black oppression in America. Though both are symbols of death, one represents a message of hope and salvation, while the other signifies the negation of that message by white supremacy. Despite the obvious similarities between Jesus' death on the cross and the death of thousands of black men and women strung up to die on a lamppost or a tree, relatively few people, apart from the black poets, novelists, and other reality-seeing artists, have explored the symbolic connections. Yet I believe this is the challenge we must face. What is at stake is the credibility and the promise of the Christian gospel and the hope that we may heal the wounds of racial violence that continue to divide our churches and our society." Unquote. Now, I have spent a lifetime pointing out the hypocrisy and the mendacity of the white church in a white-dominated society while lifting and exalting the voices and the experiences of the oppressed. I write out of my experience as an African-American growing up in segregated Arkansas and a close association with the civil rights and black power movements in the 1960s, defined by Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. But more importantly, 
I write out of a deep theological conviction that the true power of the Christian gospel is its unambiguous call for liberation from the forces of oppression and a fierce and uncompromising condemnation of all who oppress. I write on behalf of those whom the Salvadorian theologian and martyr Ignacio Elia Curia called the crucified peoples of history. I write for the forgotten and the abused, the marginalized and the oppressed. I write for those who are penniless, jobless, landless, and those who have no political power. I write for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and those who are transgender. I write for undocumented farm workers toiling in the misery in the nation's agricultural fields. I write for Muslims who are under the terror of war and empire in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I write for all people who care about humanity. I believe that until white Americans, especially theologians and Christians, can see the cross and the lynching tree together until we can identify Christ with a re-crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree. There can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. As I started reading about lynching and about the historical situation of the crosses in Rome during Jesus' time, my question was, how did African Americans survive and resist the lynching terror? How did they do it? There were nearly 5,000 men, women, and children who were lynched in America following the Civil War. And their devastated families were left behind to cope with their great loss. Now, to live daily under the terror of death was no easy matter. I grew up in Arkansas a lynching state. I know from experience something about lynching. I watched my mother and father deal with it. But the moment I began to read about it, examining lynching historically, I had to ask how in the world did blacks survive? How did they keep their sanity in the midst of all that terror? I discovered as strange and as paradoxically as it may appear, it was the cross. It was their faith in Jesus' cross, believing that if God was with Jesus, God must be with us. 
because we are up on the cross too. My other question was, how did white Americans who say they believe that Jesus died on the cross to save humanity, how could they then turn around and put blacks on crosses and crucify them just like the Romans crucified Jesus? That was an amazing paradox to me. African-Americans use faith to survive and to resist, while whites use faith in order to terrorize black people. Two communities, both Christian, embracing the same faith. Whites even did lynchings on church grounds. How could they do it? That was where my passion for writing this book came. That's where the paradox came from. That's where my theological wrestling came from. Many Christians embraced the conviction that Jesus died on the cross to redeem humankind from sin. Taking our place, they say, Jesus suffered on the cross and gave his life as a ransom for many. The cross, then, is the great symbol of the Christian narrative of salvation. Unfortunately, during the course of 200 years of Christian history, the cross as a symbol of salvation has been detached from the ongoing suffering and oppression of human beings, the crucified people of history. The cross has been transformed into a harmless, non-offensive ornament that Christians wear around their necks, rather than reminding us of the cost of discipleship, it has become a form of cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, an easy way to salvation that doesn't force us to confront the power of Christ's message and mission. In writing this book, I found my inspiration in the black church, and along with writers such as James Baldwin, Albert Camus, and Richard Wright, as well as the great blues artists of my youth, these artists and writers, not the white theologians, gave me a sense of awe in the presence of humanity, fighting for justice against great odds. I saw that for most ordinary blacks, it was the blues and religion that offered them the chief weapons of resistance. It was the blues and religion that offered sources of hope that there was more to life than what one encountered in daily in the white man's world. In the words of the great poets and writers, 
in the great blues singers and in the thunderous services of the black church, I discovered those who were able to confront the bleak circumstances of their lives and yet defy fate and suffering and make the most of what little of life had to offer them. Through these connections, I found my voice burst forth in black theology and black power. I understood that when people do not want to be themselves but somebody else, that's utter despair. A kind of sickness unto death, as the Danish theologian Kierkegaard said. And I knew that faith informed by the blues was one thing that white people could not control or take away from African Americans. As the great bluesman Robert Johnson put it, I got to keep moving. I've got to keep moving, blues falling like hell. And the day keeps worrying me. There's a hellhound on my trail. After reading Baldwin, Camus, and Wright, I wanted to go back to graduate school and study literature and get a PhD at the University of Chicago in the 1960s under the tutelage of the Negro professor Nathan Scott, widely regarded as the creator <coughs> and leading scholar in the field of theology and liter literature. Although Nathan Scott and I talked about it, the black freedom movement was too urgent for me to return to school. America's cities were burning and blacks were being shot down in the streets. I said to myself, you already have a PhD. If you ain't got nothing to say now after six years of graduate study at Garrett and Northwestern University, you ain't never gonna have anything to say. Forget school. Sit your ass down in that chair and write what you think. Now, I never wrote or taught anything about Carl Barth, the person I wrote my dissertation on, because I like people who talk and write about the real concrete world where people are suffering. And unless I can feel it in my gut, I can't say it. The poor help me to say it because I feel their pain. The literary and activist people help me to say it because they write about suffering with imagination and power. James Baldwin is my favorite. Martin King is next. Malcolm X is the third person of my trinity. The poets and the orators give me energy. Theologians talk about things far removed, way out there in some intellectual stratosphere where only they inhabit. 
They talk to each other. They give each other degrees. The real world is not out there where they live and think. So that is why I turn to the poets and the activists. They talk to the people I love and the people I know, the marginalized of the world. Being Christian is like being black. It's a paradox, a profound contradiction. You grow up black, and you can't help but wonder why whites treat you like that. It's hard to figure out, especially as an innocent child. And yet, at the same time, my mother and daddy told me, don't you hate like they hate. If you do, you will self-destruct. Hate kills the hater, not necessarily the hated. It was my parents' faith that gave them the inner resources to transcend the brutality and to see the real beauty in the tragedy of their lives. It's a mystery, a profound mystery deep mystery as to how African Americans, after two and a half centuries of slavery, another century of lynching and Jim Crow segregation, and yet still come out loving white people. Now many whites hear me talk and read my books, don't think I love them, but I do. They always have a strange expression on their faces when I say that and look at me as if I must be kidding them. But you see, the deeper the love, the more the passion, especially when the ones you love hurt you. You are their brothers and sisters, and yet they treat you like enemies. The paradox then is this, in spite of slavery, lynching, and segregation, African Americans are the only people who have never organized militarily to take down this nation. We have fought for America in every war, even in when we were not wanted. We have sacrificed our lives for a nation that despised us. Yet, no matter what they do to us, we still come out whole, still searching for that transcendent meaning that nobody can take away. I think of the resources for survival and resistance. Those resources are found in black culture and religion. Our faith and culture, the blues and the spirituals, gave African Americans a sense that we are not what whites say we are. The cross is a paradoxical religious symbol because it inverts the world's value system with the good news that hope comes by way of defeat, that suffering and death do not have the last word, 
that the last shall be first and the first last. This idea is absurd to the intellect, yet profoundly real in the spiritual lives of black folk. For those who were lynched, the crucified Christ manifests God's loving and liberating presence in the contradictions of black life. The cross of Jesus is that transcendent presence in the lives of black Christians, which empowers them to believe that ultimately, in God's eschatological future, they will not be defeated by the troubles of this world, no matter how great and painful their suffering is. This paradox, this absurd faith claim, was only possible when one was shorn of power, when one was unable to be proud and mighty, and when one understood that people were not created to rule over others. The cross was God's critique of power, white power, with powerless love, snatching victory out of defeat. What I am talking about is somewhat like love, it is something you cannot prove empirically or articulate adequately, but its truth is self-evident in the living of it. I have seen the transforming power of this faith in the cross among black Christians who struggle, especially those among the freedom fighters in the civil rights movement. Many knew that they were going to die. They knew they were not going to win in the obvious way of winning. But they had to do what they did because the transcendent reality encountered in their fight for justice was more powerful than the opposition, more meaningful than that which contradicted it. See, people respond to that which empowers them on the inside, that which makes them know that they are somebody when the world treats them as nobody. When you can act out of that spirit, then you know that there is a reality much bigger than you. And that was, that's what black religion bears witness to in all of its flaws. It bears witness to spiritual resources that empower marginalized people to do things that seem impossible. I grew up with that. I really don't ever remember wishing to, that I was white because being black was so wonderful and beautiful especially as I saw blackness embodied in the lives of my mother and father and a host of other proud black men and women in Arkansas. There may have been moments when that desire to be white may have crossed my mind, but I don't remember it. The reality of love in my community was so strong 
that I did not have time to wish I was white. The spiritual lives of my parents and other blacks were much more important than the material things I saw in the white world that hated me. Black music, black preaching, black loving, black dancing, everything black was much more interesting and inspiring. Blackness saved me from whiteness and kept me sane, believing that I was somebody. How do people know that they are not what the world says when they have so few political and social resources to defend their humanity? So few economic resources to physically survive. And so few educational resources to express their somebodyness. For blacks in the U.S., it was their faith, which is inseparable from their culture. That was why I call the blues secular spirituals. The blues are spiritual resources, a cultural power that enables black people to express their humanity. James Baldwin only finished high school. Richard Wright only finished the ninth grade. But they still had their say and bore witness to a transcendence in blackness that no one could take away. Blackness is the image of God in black people. It is the light in the white darkness. B.B. King never got out of grade school. And Louis Armstrong hardly went to school at all. Now I said to myself, if Louis Armstrong could blow a trumpet like that, forget it. I'm going to write theology the way Louis Armstrong blows that trumpet. And the way Billie Holiday sings a strange fruit. I want to reach deep down in my black being to those cultural resources that enable African Americans to express themselves when the world said they had nothing to say. People who resist create hope and love of humanity. The civil rights struggle was a mass movement, but a movement defined by love. You always have both sides, you know. You have bad faith and good faith. I like to write about the good faith. Faith that resists, faith that empowers, faith that enables people to look another in the eye and tell them what you think. I remember growing up in Arkansas, there were a lot of masks. As Paul Lawrence Dunbar put it, we wear the mask that grins and lies. I wore a mask in Arkansas as a child when I went down to white people's town in Bearden and other places. 
but not in my own community. I wore a mask in the white community because I knew what they could do to you and your family. I wore a mask even in graduate school because I had to find a way to excel in academic environment that refused to acknowledge my black existence. But I kept saying to myself, one of these days I'm going to take that mask off and say what I think to white people and make up for lost time. And so, the last 40-some years, that's what I've been doing. I write to encourage African Americans to get in touch with that inner resource in you so that you can say it clearly and forcefully and as truthfully as you can. Not all blacks can do that because whites have a lot of power. Now, many white churches exist, but most are not the real thing. They are just loving each other, people in their own group. That's all they do is socialize with each other at least most of the time. You seldom find a church that has any diversity in it. Now how can that be Christian? God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self, as Paul said. Well, it was the white church. It was in the white churches that the white God and the white Christ enslaved and separated blacks from the white community. But I say that as long as you are silent and do nothing about the sin of white supremacy, as for true for so many white theologians and preachers, you are just as guilty as the one who's strong black up on those trees. Just like Peter was silent when the Romans hung Jesus on a cross. Black Simon took up Jesus' cross that Simon Peter was supposed to bear. If you're going to worship somebody who was nailed to a tree, you must know that life of a disciple of that person is not going to be easy. You may end up on a tree too, just like Jesus and the blacks that white despise. So, in this sense, we have to take seriously the Christian faith, or else we will end up saying the very opposite of what it means. My mother and father did not have my opportunity. So when I write and speak, I try to write and speak for them. They never had a chance to stand up before white people or anybody and tell them what they think. I've got to do it for them somehow. I try to do that all over the world. 
I think of Lucy and Charlie Cone. And of all the Lucy and Charlie Cones that are out there and cannot speak. I think of them and not of myself. I think of them and feel their spirit flowing through my body, encouraging me, empowering me to speak the truth. They deepen my spirituality and give me something to hold on to, something that I can feel and touch. It is a very spiritual experience because you are doing something for people you love who cannot and will never have a chance to speak in a context like this. So why do I need to speak for myself? I need to speak for all those people, as Martin Luther King Jr. put it, who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. If you feel passion in my voice, if you feel energy in my text, that's because I've been thinking of Lucy and Charlie Cone, my daddy and mama. And as long as I can do that, I think I'll stay on the right track. Thank you. have some Q&A and afterwards Dr. Cone will be signing his book outside so there are books outside for sale so if you have a question please come up to the mic yes Dr. Cone yes you charge the white race for the lynchings but failed to charge God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with allowing the lynchings to persist. Mm -hmm. But if God is all powerful yeah. and did nothing to stop it, yeah. is not God just as responsible for the lynchings? Um, that's a good question. That's an old theology question. That's an old theodicy question. And i tell you something, you're never going to find the answer to it. <laughs> you're not. First, question, first paper I wrote in, in, in college, and the only paper I wrote in college, actually, uh, was Why Do People Suffer? And it focused on the question you have there. And it is a great paradox. That's a real question. But you're not going to find an answer to that. And I used to, I wrestled with that question. And when I was, when I set this book up, I was thinking about it. But all the books I read about that question were boring, <laughs> unempowering, 
And I said to myself, it's a rational discussion. It conflicts with what you think, you know, in the mind. And, and I just found it uninteresting. I won't say it's not important, but it's uninteresting. I'm interested in the people who did the lynching. I see them. So I'm going to let God do what God's going to do. I leave that over there. I mean, we, you know, that's why I speak of God as mystery. God comes in when I when I run out. When I can't do nothing. And then I said, Lord, I've done all I can. The rest is left up to you. Now, whether there is logically, rationally, really somebody out there that's going to explain, I don't know. I find out pretty soon, though. I will, because I'm getting close. So I, if I find out, I'll come back, I'll let you know. All right? In the meantime, in the meantime, I'm going to deal with what I do know. And not going to waste my time on some answer, some question I'm not going to find an answer to. So that's why I don't deal with that particular question in this text. But I wrestle with, I deal with two questions. It's why, how did blacks survive and resist nearly four centuries of white supremacy? And the other question is, why did these white Christians do it? Those are the two. I'm concerned about human questions, not divine ones. Because while I'm doing that, they're doing it to me. You follow what I mean? I ain't got time to just, you know, go up in some stratosphere. They doing it to me down here. So I have to respond to what I see. Now, you may be right and maybe no God. I'm, you know, that, you can put that out there. It just doesn't do me any good. I want to do what empowers me, what makes me resist and cope with inhumanity. And I found the answer to that question in my early childhood as I watched my mother and father deal with it. And I watched other black people deal with it. That's why that question is not in the book. But that's a, that's a good question. You keep pursuing that. <laughs> and when you get the answer, you maybe you can come tell me. Okay? What, what is that? Which one? Okay, all right, I'll take it. Yes. Uh, Dr. Collins, why do we continue to give credence to the word lynching as we do the uh, rebel uh, flag when we defeated it? Now, give me the question again. Why, why do we give credence to the word lynching, I guess, which is associated with Willie uh, Lynch when it comes to the African-American community when we defeated it? it? It never defeated us. We overcame it. Just as we overcame the rebel flags when Southern whites uh, get all excited about the Southern flag, we defeated the uh, South. And we defeated that flag. That flag is a symbol of, of defeat. You know, even the 54th Massachusetts that, um, yeah. we, that Frederick Douglass put together to defeat the South. Yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't end it, though. We didn't end it. We st it's still going on. We ain't got it yet. 
I mean, I mean, the white supremacy is still very much alive. Right. right. You're right about what you're saying, but white supremacy is still alive. Right. And and in in order for you to have the capacity to continue to defeat these things, as you point out, you got to remember how you did it in the past. That's right. You got to keep telling your story. Amen. You know, you know, they won't let you forget 9-11. That's right. They won't. And they're never going to. It's going to be that's going to be there all the time. But they don't want us to remember slavery. They don't want us to remember lynching. Well, what happened in 9-11? Lynching was worse. Amen. More people died. They don't want to remember that. And so I I wanna I, I agree with you. I'm on that journey. Yeah. But uh we still gotta continue to fight. Amen. That's all I'm saying. Amen. Okay. And, and I'm gonna move away because I just want you to tell us where the old landmark is. What? Where is the old landmark when in the African American community when we talk about the old landmark? I don't know. Is where is it? Somebody wanna know. tell me what the old going back to the old landmark? I don't know. I haven't found it. I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, maybe somebody here tell us. Get in line something. Yes. I don't know. Yes. How you doing, Dr. Cohen? All right. I'm fine. Uh, my name's uh, Adam Jackson. Before I ask my question, uh, I just wanted to let you know that I used to be a part of the uh, Towson University debate team and that some of the best black debaters in the country have been using your books. Oh, really? You used to be a part of that debate? Team that was on that movie, that thing. Oh no, not the no, <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> now this is another one, huh? I thought you were saying Towson, Towson, T O L S O N. Oh no, no, Towson, Towson University. Yeah. Oh, Towson. What, what's the name of that university? It's here in Maryland. Oh, it's here in Maryland. Okay, all right, good, good. You've been using my book. Did it help you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, matter of fact, the first black national debate champions used your material to win debates and uh, national tournaments. They weren't able to come tonight, but they, you know, I just wanted to. Oh, really? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad I'm helping somebody out. Yes, thank you. That really makes me feel great. Yes, go ahead. But uh, I actually have a question that deals with um, more, of a, more of a personal issue I've been having with uh, Christianity because yeah. I can I consider myself somebody who's really involved in the community mm -hmm. and who I tries to like be involved with social uh, activism and things of that nature. Yeah. But as on my spiritual journey as a Christian, I find it hard to go to church with like even in a black church with I black know. folks, a black preacher. Yeah. And like I do thinking too. A, and thinking about. <laughs> but, I do too. You 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 you. We... But, but like thinking, but like. At the same time, it's like I can't erase the image of white Jesus out of my brain. Yeah. And I, and I find it hard to have discussions with other white people who tell me, like, it doesn't matter if Jesus was black or white. It's just that he loved the human race and what have you. So I guess I want to ask you for some guidance because I'm reading. I started to read uh, your first book. Black Theology, Black Power. Mm -hmm. And I started to get my, my, I guess my gears moving on it. So I guess I kind of want you to give me some guidance on like, yeah. what is the discussion that needs, what, what do I need to be thinking about when I have those issues? Like when I'm thinking about like white Jesus and how do I talk to my colleagues about, you know, what does it mean to be in a black church and think about uh, black Jesus? Yeah, uh, let, let me, you, you know, I think that's a good question because I had that question. I had to write my books in order to stay in the church. And it's still hard for me to go. I know exactly what you mean. That all that hooping and hollering, uh, it it really gets you, you know. All that entertainment. I mean, if I want to be entertained, I go on Broadway. 
I, you know, I, I need more than that. I know what you mean. I, I write because there are one or two that know what's going on. Jeremiah Wright knows. He knows. And there are some others around, but they, you know, they sort of demonize them. And, and, but keep in mind this. The majority are never going to be where you want to be. See, that, 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 it's always a minority. It was a minority that followed Jesus. It's always, it was a minority of, of early Christian. Christianity didn't become the majority until the fourth century when Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. That's when it died. And the church, from that moment on, its creeds came out of that time, its articulation of its faith came out of that time, and it's been off track ever since. So don't look at the majority. You read the story of Jesus, you can't see it in these churches. No, it's a minority, and God takes a remnant and, and, and transforms the world with it. Even the majority of black churches weren't involved in the civil rights movement. In fact, J.H. Jackson, the head of the largest black denomination in this land, hated King. That's a fact. And most of those preachers did, because they thought they were more important. So don't, don't let false prophets drive you away from a powerful faith if you understand it right. So what you need to do, a young man like you, you need to read, 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 read. Read Baldwin. He can tell you what the faith is. I like it. He, Baldwin left the church in order to stay within that spirituality. He had to leave. So I, I want to just encourage you, don't let false prophets Define what Christianity is for you. They don't have a monopoly on that. The true definition of the Christian faith is found in the story and the narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's where it is. And you see people deep, you know, getting off track on that, then they got the wrong thing. So that's what I tell you. Appreciate it. Thank okay, you. all right. Yes, Dr. Combs, I was watching you on uh, Bill Moyer's show, and it was very interesting to see you answer the questions. I was like, go ahead now and tell the truth. One of the things you said that I thought was very powerful is that you said that the ability, the power of God is the ability to resist the definitions that are put on you. That's right. And That's exactly right. And today, it seems like we, a lot of our people are succumbing to the definitions that are being put on us and we're being controlled by it. So I wanted you to expand on what you said earlier and also how in today's time do we begin to find that power of God in order to resist the definitions that are being put on us today from a young perspective and also from the church perspective. Okay. 
Yeah, I think that's important, you know, and I, you know, that's what my book is about, is how people find that power to resist. I think you find it, you find it among people who are resistive. You have to, you know, life is a constant struggle. You don't ever stop struggling. That's where you find life. That's where you find inspiration, in the struggle itself. That's why you don't want to burn yourself out. You want to deepen and take it each step at a time. And the only thing I, I would say is, is that you have to be around people who are thinking and acting and feeling the way you do. That's how you keep your feeling alive. And you, it doesn't have to be somebody down the street. You can pick up a book and walk with somebody in the 12th century. You can pick up a book and walk with some walk with the slaves in the 19th century. How did they survive? If they could stay on track, we have no excuse. No excuse. We have more resources today than we've ever had. And there is no reason to give up in despair or anything. So I tell you, keep pushing. But stay on track and, and, and read, 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 and read some more. Okay. Good evening, Dr. Cohen. Good evening. Um, just wanted to quickly state that I also work with the Towson University debate team with Adam. And I had a very interesting moment where some people from Rutgers University in New Jersey were actually using your work in their debates debating against us. Really? So I had to debate against you, basically. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this was not an easy thing to do, but in that attempt, I came up with a question I wanted to ask yes, you. Yes, sure. You mentioned Toni Morrison. I read a book by Leslie Merriam Silco called Ceremony. Yeah. And she points out what some people see as a fundamental conundrum in Christianity for people of color. She tells a story of a grandmother who is very pained, but nonetheless distances herself from her grandson, because in her mind, there's a fundamental notion of Christianity, of an individualistic notion of salvation. So she has to protect herself from her grandson's sins if she wants to enter the kingdom of God. So I wanted to talk to you about what some people see as this conundrum, with many people of color having a collective notion of subjectivity, but Christianity being seen by many as having an individualistic notion of salvation. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, they have a distorted view of what Christianity is. Christianity is not an individual. It's not about your personal salvation. It's about the salvation of a community. Jesus called 12 disciples. He didn't call one. He called a community around him. And the whole story is a story of a community. And so anybody who interprets Christianity as an individual thing got a distorted understanding of it. And all I would want to emphasize is that you have to help people to see this communal perspective on the Christian gospel and not simply an individualistic one. Uh, evening, Dr. Cohn. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the notion of being a theologian, which yes. you only briefly addressed. Yeah. Um, and I, I, 
I, I appreciate your uh, noting that being a theologian is something that only is really helpful to a very few number of people in a certain sense. That, <laughs> yeah. Um, use a language that most people yeah. can't access. But I, I found um, that there are certain, well, let's call them enabling mechanisms within different uh, strands of theology, yeah. which are what create these sort of uh, movements of hatred of, and of, of closed-mindedness. And yeah. you know, we've seen that in the evolution of the theology that you're countering, like, you know, manifest destiny. Yes, like that's a, right, a that's right, that's right. result of an enabling right. mechanism within yeah. a theological right. framework. So that's right. as a theologian existing in a prominent uh, institution where I'm sure you have colleagues who present pretty different theology. Yes, that's right. Um, that's like right. What what does that dialogue look like, and what what role does it play in shaping the theology that we get in the pews that I hear um, yeah. on the street? And like clearly, as a theologian, your your book is some of your work is probably like pretty inaccessible to the mass populace, academically speaking. Like some of the things that you talk about with your colleagues, whatever. We well, don't... you need to read it. Sure, great. I, 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 no, I don't think it's inaccessible. No, 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 no. I'm not. If I'm you not finish saying... high school, I right. think you can okay. read. No, it. If not, you can I'm not... read, yeah, no, I'm not I saying... think you can get me. I'm not saying you specifically. I mean, in in general, like the. Like yeah, the, the, I agree. I talked theology. about that. So what? But but at the same time, this academic theology that's beyond the mass populace is affecting them. Okay, I, you so want me to can speak you, yeah, to that? Yeah, can you speak to that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, yeah, that's the theology I've been writing against. Mm -hmm. That's the theology I learned in graduate school. And that wrote my first book in order to uh, uh, break my ties with that. I wrote a dissertation about that. It was on Karl Barth. He's called the greatest theologian in modern times. Wrote more than anybody. But he didn't inspire me. I had to get a PhD degree. That's why I wrote it. Who inspires me? A blues artist, blues writers, people like Morrison and 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 and. James Baldwin and Malcolm X and Martin King, those are the people I write about. And those are the people I teach. I'm teaching a course right now, Martin King and Malcolm X. I teach a course on black liberation theology. So I teach what I write. And I think it is, except if you, what you heard tonight, if people can understand that, that's what's in the book. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not okay, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I think, I don't think academic theology is a theology of the gospel. Uh -huh. Jesus was not an intellectual. Jesus was a peasant. He could not read or write. Never went to school. So that's the person. Jesus would be rejected by the theologians today, and they do reject him because they write books that bear little resemblance to him. Okay, now that's the end of that question. Yes. Welcome, Dr. Cole. Ye yes. I want to thank you for your inspiring book and uh, for speaking the truth. I think this is, um, as you said, Christianity, uh, people standing up for their rights. Um, trying to live in this so-called colorblind society yeah. right. is a task in itself. Right. I really think the racists, the white supremacists, 
they they don't care. They they yeah. they they believe in themselves. However, how how do you cope? You you say that there's still uh, racism. There's still we are still being lynched. Our minds are being lynched. How do you cope? How do you move on? How, how do you cope? Yeah, that's what I wrote that book about. It's telling you how you cope. You know, I would say you cope by listening to and being around other people who cope. That's how you do it, in community. You know, when those civil rights workers were fighting and struggling out there, they didn't do it as an individual. They did it as a group. They could confront the violence when they were together in community. So what I want to tell you, be read about people who cope. James Baldwin is one. Toni Morrison is another. Martin King is another. Malcolm X is another. There are a host of people who face that white supremacy. You, if you want to know how to survive it, watch how others survived it. I read about slavery. Nothing worse than that. They survived it. How did they survive it? They created that music of hope in a despairing situation. When you can create hope out of despair, you have already defeated the enemy. Okay. Uh, good evening. Uh, Dr. Combs, you are, as we say in West Africa, uh, the Yoruba, I like by a great well, a great elder. Uh, I'm a Yoruba priest. Yes. All right. What I see that's missing in the church and in all of our organizations, mm -hmm. regardless of what ism that there is, yes, is that we don't. You ask the question, well, how do we do this and how do we do that? Yes. You must be a, must be around those who have coped, yeah, or right. who does cope everyday right. living, right, everyday right. circumstances, experiences, etc. Right. The samples or examples have always been with us. They have never left us. Right. Right. Before we left the continent. Okay. Now, what's your question? Okay, Mike. Okay, Mike. My, <laughs> my question is, how is it possible for the church to I'm talking about the black church. Yeah, right. To go back, backward, into their past, are they interested in what ingredients can be okay. utilized to move forward? Okay, that's a good question. You know, the interesting thing is, is unfortunately, most black churches are not interested in their past. And that's the problem. Yes. And I'm trying to get them interested. And I, that's why I write. I write about the past because they have to get in. The black church is interested in institutional survival and not in their past and the survival of their community. Unfortunately, that's unfortunate. So I want to, I, I want to, so that's what I'm working on. I want to thank everybody tonight. Do you have one other question? One, no, uh, you're going to clue. Okay, right. thank you all very much.